today. It's been a couple of Sundays. We were in Job two Sundays ago, as a matter of fact, and we looked at the second half of the fifth part of Elihu's speech. We were in the tail end of Job 36. It's where Elihu sought to correct Job's bad thinking regarding these charges he was making against God for God being inactive, for God not fixing his situation. And I gave you the last two Ps. They were Elihu's perception. That was in verses 17 to 21 of chapter 36, and Elihu's position, chapter 36, 22 to 33. The big point was that God is not inactive when things seem to be at a standstill, that He's always working to accomplish His plan and purposes. And so even during times where it seems stagnated and, you know, the Lord really, it doesn't seem like He's moving and maybe our life situation is difficult and nothing's changing, He is actually working in any number of ways. Now, in the final section of Elihu's tremendous speech, because I think that it's probably, up to this point, probably the greatest speech in the book, even, even better than some of Job's, certainly better than the three goofballs. Uh, but this has just been an amazing speech, and we have reached the end of it. This is chapter 37 is it. After this, God takes over and starts speaking. Then we'll see the best speeches. But in this last one from Elihu, he is going to confront another or at least one final bad thought and false charge from Job. And let me just build on this so I can make the point. But I think we would all agree that when calamity strikes and when things happen and and our circumstances change, we're dealing with a tragedy or some kind of difficulty in our life, um, we have a, a daily rhythm Right? We, we do things every day. We have a pattern and a rhythm of life. And when calamity comes, it just disrupts that rhythm. And for those of us who do not like change, it's really hard, which is pretty much everyone in this room. And if you don't agree, you're lying because you don't like change. But when calamity comes, the rhythm, the normal rhythm, is usually disrupted. And I think that it's safe to say that during these times, we find ourselves in uncommon and uncomfortable places. The sickbed. How many of you in this room just can't wait to get into the sickbed? None of us want to be in the sickbed. It's pretty much an uncommon place for the majority of us, and it's certainly uncomfortable. Or the doctor's office, the ER, the OR, the attorney's office, the courtroom the pastor's office. And I have to admit that can be one of the most intimidating places of all time, not because of me, but because I was in countrymen's office pretty regularly. The unemployment line. That's not fun. The police station. The funeral parlor. The graveside. Right? You you experience loss, some kind of calamity, the rhythm gets annihilated, you find yourself in these places that you do not normally visit. And I think that the the mental, spiritual, psychological, even physical effect of calamity and the disruption of rhythm and having to be in all these places, it can be pretty devastating. As a rule of thumb, 
if the calamity is big, the disruption will be big. And the impact, the psychological, spiritual, physical, whatever, emotional, the impact will also be big, right? Big events, big calamities produce a big impact, a big disruption. And when something small happens, we tend to think, well, this is not good. When something big happens, we say, this is really bad. When something gigantic or multiple calamities fall at the same time, we often say things like, my life is spiraling out of control. And this is where Job is at. He had been struck by three massive calamities in a row. He lost his wealth, chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. He lost his 10 children, chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. And I, I, as a father, I, I'm not even sure how anyone could recover from that. The loss of one child is unconscionable. The loss of 10, I'm moving to Colorado. No, because there's family there. I'm moving to Siberia. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. These are two massive calamities. And then the final blow from Satan is that he lost his health. And that was Job 2, verses 7 to 8. Three huge calamities. And these calamities, they disrupted every facet of his rhythm, every facet of his life. They not only destroyed his wealth, family, and health, they absolutely obliterated and disrupted his normal rhythm. And I have no doubt, because I've, we've read and studied his speeches over and over and over, that the psychological, spiritual, emotional toll on Job was absolutely tremendous. And the council of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three stooges, it didn't help either. Instead of alleviating some of his discomfort, they elevated it. Job sees his life spiraling out of control, and he begins to wonder if it's because God is not in control. Do we not do the same thing? When our lives are quiet and peaceful and our regular daily rhythm is undisturbed, we affirm that God is in control. Hallelujah, amen. We'll sing about it till the cows come home. But when calamity strikes and it disrupts everything, we begin to doubt and question God's control. Think of it like this. If our life is under control, God appears to be in control. But if our life seems out of control, God appears to be out of control as well. Now, we tend to base what we believe about God on positive and negative experiences. And this is a mistake. We should be basing our beliefs about God on the rock-solid Word of God, on Scripture. It presents the most accurate information concerning who God is and how He cares for His people. It is God's revelation about Himself, about us, and about His plan of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So... If we base our understanding of God on our circumstances, on the good, the bad, and the ugly, the things that happen, our view of God, our understanding, it's going to be all over the place. It's not going to be rock solid. It's not going to be stable. And that's why we're to base it on the Word because it's the only stability we have. Amen? But we don't do this. We don't. We fail. 
in our flesh. And I think so often it leads to this really bad thinking of, I just don't think God's in control because everything around me is out of control. How could God be in control? How could, be, how could he be sovereignly in control when the entire world is out of control? When my, my little world is out of control? This is the thinking. And I think it's pretty common. In this final section, Elihu will correct Job's bad thinking. He will set the record straight. He will teach Job that God is always in control no matter what we're going through. And he will demonstrate this by showing how God exercises constant control over things that appear to be unpredictable and even out of control, namely storms. And if you were to think about all the unpredictable things in, in the world, would you not think of storms because they come and go, it's hot and cold, they're dangerous, then they're mellow. I mean, they're all over the place, right? The weather is everywhere. And Elihu is going to take the weather and he's going to show that God has perfect control over it to demonstrate that God is always in control. That's going to be the main drive here. Take your Bibles and turn to Job 37, 1 through 24. I'm sure you're there. I have entitled this message very aptly and just logically, God is still in control. He's still in control. It's going to be a four-point sermon. There's nothing matching here. This is the outfit where nothing matches. I don't have matching letters and words and all that, but it's okay. I'm going to pray. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for this time. Open our hearts and minds to your word. Be glorified during this sermon. We want to give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And we need to pick up where we left off on May 1st. Look at our first point. Number one, God controls the electrical storm. The electrical storm, verses 1 through 5. We'll pick it up in verses 1 to 2. Listen to what Elihu says next. He says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Stop there. Elihu tells Job that his heart trembles, and it, it's like it's trying to leap out of its place, out of his chest, when he ponders the awesome power of God in nature, specifically in an electrical storm. When Elihu himself just ponders the awesome, sovereign, all-power, omnipotent power of God concerning nature and how he runs all of nature in the storms, the electrical storm, he just says, it's almost as if his heart faints or it tries to jump out of his body and run from him. He's kind of blown away by the awe-inspiring, awesome power of God in relation to storms, to nature. And he exhorts Job to keep listening to the thunder, which metaphorically represents God's voice. Like, Job, if you just stop and listen to the storm as it passes by, and when you hear the thunder, that is like God's awesome thundering voice. When the thunder is rumbling, Elihu says, this is the mouth of the Almighty God. Now, keep in mind, Job has been attacking God and saying, God doesn't speak. He stopped speaking to me. He's not speaking into this situation at all. 
And Elihu is saying, if you would just stop and listen to the storms that pass by, you would hear God speaking in His awesomeness through the thunder. And he says that when the thunder rumbles, this is God's voice, what is God doing through this metaphorically? He is declaring His awesome sovereign power and His presence. Kind of get the idea here that the next time a storm rolls through here, which will be probably in about 38 years, you might think of that storm differently if you hear thunder and see lightning. Verses 3 through 5, he says, under the whole, Elihu says, under the whole heaven, God lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. I love that, like a lion. His voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. What poetry we have here. This is amazing. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't think or write like this if I was paid to, and I am paid to, which is sad for me. This is, is this not amazing? Where are these men of God today? In verse 3, Elihu continues to direct Job to hear and sense God's awesome power in an electrical storm. In such a storm, God lets it go, and his lightning spreads out over the skies to the corners of the earth under the whole heaven. It's like the idea that God has lightning bolts in his sovereign, all-powerful hands, and he releases them, and they scatter throughout the skies. This imagery is amazing. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in an electrical storm? Have you? Well, I tell you, they're very rare here in California, right? Very rare. I mean, it, we get a sprinkle of rain here and there, but very little thunder, very little lightning. But I'll tell you what, when my family and I went to Kentucky last July, we saw these storms every day. Did you notice how I said July? July. July is monsoon season in the south and in parts of the Midwest, so... There's two, three, four of these massive, massive electrical storms passing essentially right over the top of Carol's house every day. Carol, my sister-in-law. And it was, it was a sight to see. It was incredible. The lightning was so frequent and so close, it was terrifying. Because there are times where I'm suffering in life and I don't value it. I was standing out on the yard with a large metal pole. No, I wasn't doing that. But I would stand out on the grass and just watch it just crashing all around me. And sometimes the lightning seemed like it was, you know, a football field away. Because it's literally just coming down all around you. And the thunder is just chest pounding. It was incredible. And Carol would run out, you need to get indoors. It's not safe to be out here. And I'm looking at her house going, this is going to protect me against this lightning. It would obliterate her house if it was struck. It's not going to protect me. This lightning would blow it off the map, I thought. 
And, and several of these storms, as I said, would pass by the property every day. And I would think at times, you know, I even tried to film it and, you know, with my phone. And, and this is where you're like, you know what, I love my phone, but I hate it right now because it doesn't give you good video of lightning storms. But I would just think to myself, God is awesome. Look at him flexing his might right now. And if you think about it, he's really not flexing his might. He's just going like this. Awesome storms. We saw them. We were in them. And this is essentially what Elihu is, the picture that he's trying to paint for Job. This is what he's trying to convey to Job. I understand it because I was just in it, but if I hadn't gone to Kentucky, I'd probably be like, eh, whatever. In verse 4, Elihu continues to use this vivid imagery to convey the incredible, awesome power of God. After the lightning strikes, how many of you count waiting, you know, trying to figure out where that thunder is, right? You see a lightning bolt once every 200 years in California, one, 1,000, two, 1,000, okay, that means the storm's really close. And after the lightning strikes, he's saying here that you, you can then at some point hear the sound of thunder in the distance, or if you're in Kentucky, right over the top of your head. Elihu says this rolling, rumbling thunder that you hear after the lightning strikes, this is God's majestic voice. He says, if God does not restrain the lightnings, the thunder will continue to rumble or his voice will continue to be heard. In verse 5a, Elihu describes the thunder as the wondrous voice of God. Wondrous, I like that. It's not a word we use anymore. In verse 5b, he reminds Job that God does great things, like what? Stir up terrifying but awe-inspiring electrical storms that finite creatures like us cannot, as he says at the end of the sentence, fully comprehend. We cannot fully comprehend how God puts these storms together and how these things transpire. We just see it and it blows our mind. And I think Elihu was also pointing back right here. He was kind of pointing back to Job 36, 31. Another great, you know, thing that we cannot fully comprehend and an unfathomable thing, so to speak, that God does is that he'll work through the same storm to bring judgment on the wicked and blessing on the righteous. And it all depends on where the eye of the storm is, right? Because at the eye of the storm, that's the most powerful part, the most damaging part. But on the outskirts of the storm, your crops get watered. If you're in the middle near the eye, bye-bye. If you're on the edge, look, my plants are growing. And Elihu says this is the unfathomable wisdom and work of God working through one storm to accomplish two sovereign purposes. Judgment on one hand, blessing on the other. What is Elihu's point in verses 1 through 5? It's very simple. God is still in control. He controls the electrical storm. It's that simple. It's that simple. Let's move to the second point. Number two, God controls the snowstorm. Verses 6 to 10, we'll start at 6. He says in the very next line, For to the snow God says, fall on the earth. 
Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. Elihu is kind of shifting his focus away from the electrical storm to a winter snowstorm. In verse 6a, he tells Job that when the snow falls, it's not merely the result of some natural process or combination of rain and freezing temperatures. It is God's work, and God tells the snow to fall. You ever thought about the snow like that? You probably don't think about the snow because you live here. It's more than just a natural phenomenon, according to Elihu, according to Scripture. Verse 6b, Elihu applies the same rule to the downpour and to the mighty downpour. The snow, downpour, and mighty downpour are not mere natural occurrences. They are by divine decree. God speaks and the snow and the rain fall. And not only that, God controls how much comes down. Sprinkle, rain, downpour, mighty downpour. You don't think we'll look at storms the same after this? I pray that we get a few. Verses 7 to 8, Elijah continues. He says, God seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. Elihu is describing a threefold effect that the snowstorm has. First, God will use the snowstorm to seal up the hand of every man. In other words, God uses the snowstorm to prevent man from working in the fields. There's not much farming going on when your land's covered in snow. And this is a deliberate act by God, Elihu says. The snowstorm, God works through the snowstorm to cause the farmer, the rancher, or the other outdoor workers to stop their work and take a break. Why? Because of the second effect. So that men whom he made may know it. You see, the snowstorm, and really all storms, but here in particular, the context of the snowstorm, it's part of what we call general revelation. God reveals his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, in the things that have been made, Romans 1.20. When man isn't working outdoors because of the snowstorm, he should be thinking about the Creator. Shouldn't be thinking about his bills or next year's crop or any of those things. He ought to be thinking about the one who controls the weather, his creator. God makes and controls snowstorms to reveal himself to his creation, namely man. And because of this, all men are without excuse. Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20. See, we often wonder, well, what about people that never hear the gospel? Look, look, they're still without excuse because God reveals himself through what he has made, namely the snowstorm. The lone pygmy on a deserted island has sand, palm trees, probably some coconuts. He's surrounded by water. This is a ridiculous illustration, but we see it in the movies or at least in the cartoons. He is without excuse because everything around him says, God is here, God exists. 
Atheism is then an impossibility because God reveals himself through what he has made. Did you understand what I just said? Atheism is the belief that God does not exist. It is literally impossible because of what? General revelation. And even more so because of special revelation. Atheism is just goofy. Spurgeon once said, atheism is a strange thing. Even the devils never fell into that vice. Thinking of that verse where even the demons understand that God exists and they tremble. Even the demons do not disbelieve in a creator God, but somehow us goofball men down on this side do. But all of creation is testifying to his invisible attributes, namely his power. The third effect that the snowstorm can have is that God works through the snowstorm to what? Drive the beasts into their lairs and remain in their dens. We call that hibernation, don't we? Okay, so what Elihu is saying is that God is so absolutely sovereign and powerful and over all things, controlling all things at all times, that even hibernation, what an example, but even hibernation is not merely a natural process or instinctual response by the animals that actually hibernate. It is the plan of God. It is the power of God. It is the control of God. It is how God preserves these animals when it's what? Dangerously cold outside and food is scarce. God is, a, is, a, is more of a conservationist than we ever will be. He takes care of his creation, even animals. He did put a bunch of them on the ark, by the way. God uses the snowstorm to signal these beasts. It's time to go into your dens. And then he signals them again at the onset of spring. It's time to come out of your dens and to start foraging for food. God is communicating through the snowstorm, through the springtime, through the seasons, through nature, even to the beasts of the field. Not just people in cities, towns, villages, the outskirts. He is revealing himself through these things. He is showing that he is in control. Verse 9, from its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. What an interesting statement. By divine edict, God sends forth the whirlwind from its chamber and the scattering icy cold winds. God is even in control of tornadoes and typhoons, anything that's essentially spinning. And the ice storms and the icy cold winds and these things. Think of it like this. God is the God of wind chill, which again doesn't, it's not something that's very common to us here. But I'll tell you this. He has been blasting some of us adults with some pretty serious wind chill at the MC at Modesto Christian Campus when we've been out there watching Cohen's Little League games. And I think Tim can testify to this because his kids played out there a few times. Has it not been pretty chilly and windy out there? And I'll sit there and say, wow, I'm just freezing to death here. Lord, what's going on? And then I realize God is not only the God of wind chill, He is the God of warm jackets. So if I show up ill-prepared, it's my fault, not His. 
He is the God of ice and the whirlwind and the freezing winds and the stuff that was nailing some of us at MC. And now it'll be hot and we'll be complaining about that. Bring back the wind chill. But make it a little warmer. Verse 10, Elihu says, By the breath of God, ice is given. Look at this. And the broad waters are frozen fast. The breath of God is a metaphor for chilling wind that produces ice that causes the broad waters. You think of frozen lakes and what have you. It causes these broad waters that's coming from Him, these broad waters to quickly freeze over. This is just kind of like one final statement about His control over the cold. What is Elihu's point in verses 6 to 10? It's, again, very simple. God is still in control. He controls the snowstorm. Let's move to our third point. Number three, God controls the rainstorm. We see this in verses 11 to 13, and we'll just tackle that set of verses right now. It says this, God loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter as lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for His land or for love. He causes it to happen. Wow! Elihu tells Job that by divine edict again, the Almighty God, He loads the thick clouds with moisture or rain, and then He also scatters His lightning throughout these clouds. Referring to these thick storm clouds, Elihu says God turns them around and around by His all-powerful guidance. Why does God control the clouds in, the, in these moisture-saturated storm rain clouds? Why does God turn them around and around and guide them here and guide them there? Elihu says, to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world. In other words, God directs the storm clouds to go here and there to accomplish His sovereign purposes in the world. Amazing. Verse 13, Elihu identifies three sovereign purposes, quickly. First, for correction, okay? God sovereignly controls and directs storm clouds to specific locations where divine correction is needed. When these storm clouds arrive at, the, at God's desired destination, God will scatter His lightning throughout them express His presence, so to speak. You'll hear the thunder, you'll see the lightning, and then He will unload the rain that these clouds contain until divine correction is accomplished, until it is achieved. Now, it might have to do with wicked people repenting of their wickedness as their villages and towns are submerged by these mighty downpours and flooding. It might look like that, but typically we just see a flood and heavy rains, right? We usually just see these kinds of storms as acts of nature, but Elihu is saying they can be the result of divine correction. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. Second, it is for His land. God sovereignly directs storm clouds to specific locations where divine care is needed. 
If the land becomes dry and parched, God can care for it by sending rainstorms and these clouds with all this water to those specific dry and parched regions to water and revitalize them. He nourishes the ground plants, animals, inhabitants, whoever is there. So it's out of divine care, not just correction, but care. And I do believe correction is a form of care. Third, Elihu says it is for love. That's very interesting. What an interesting choice of Hebrew words that he used there. God sovereignly directs storm clouds to specific locations where he desires to express his love. The Hebrew word for love is H-E-S-E-D. Matt and I were talking about this not long ago, but we usually call it he said or he seed. That is the Hebrew word that is used here. And it's very often rendered into English not just as love, but as goodness and kindness and mercy. He said, can me goodness, kindness, and mercy? In fact, the CEV, that's the Contemporary English Bible, not one I use often, but it's, it's okay, and I use it once in a while, but it actually uses the word kindness here instead of love, which might actually be a better rendering. But then again, when God sends rain to areas, it is out of love. I like how the uh, CJB, it's the complete Jewish Bible, puts it. it. It reads, God brings forth the storm clouds. Why? Sometimes to express His grace. That's great. Elihu seems to be speaking of God's common grace or providence when he speaks of God's love here, or that he said, our good God graciously causes what? The rain to fall on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5, 45. That's an example of common grace or providence. And I think that's what he's talking about here. God directs and positions storm clouds to administer correction, to show care, and to express His gracious goodness or providence. What is Elihu's point in verses 11 to 13? It's very simple. God is in control. He controls the rainstorm. Now, in verses 14 to 18, we see a brief intermission before Elihu transitions to the next category. The intermission is, is kind of like a call to reflect. He wants Job to reflect on what he said thus far and to answer a few questions. And, of course, this applies to us. Verses 14 to 18, we start at 14 before we move into the next category. Verse 14 says, Elihu says this, Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Elihu presses Job, really, not just to consider, but to explain the wondrous works of God in nature or in the storms. And these are literally things that Job, nor any man, can fully comprehend. He's already established that fact back in verse 5. Elihu is basically saying, Job, since you're so incredibly knowledgeable and wise... And that's his assessment of Job since Job is now telling God what to do. Since you are so incredibly knowledgeable and wise like God, why don't you explain to me how God puts all these storms together? Can you tell me? And then in verses 15 to 18, he totally grills Job for answers. He turns him into a whopper at Burger King. You can see the grill marks on Job's backside. Verses 15 to 18... 
He says this, Do you know how God lays His command upon them and causes the lightning of His cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of Him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. Can you, like Him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? (laughs) These questions are amazing. And the only suitable answer Job could give is, no. Or, I don't know. In verse 18, he asks an interesting question. He's asking if Job could mimic God and spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror. Ancient mirrors were made of bronze. They were unbreakable. And boy, let me tell you, they didn't give a very good reflection. So they would make some people feel good about their appearance and some feel really bad. Right? If you're not all that attractive, you're like, man, I look good. If you're an Adonis, you're like, I look hideous. Right? If you're a narcissist, you're doing both. Ancient mirrors were made of bronze. They were unbreakable. A bronze mirror-like sky pictures the sweltering summer heat. That's the idea here. Elihu is saying, Job, can you, like God, change the seasons from cold to hot? Can you go from creating a snowstorm to creating sweltering, a mirror-like, a bronze mirror-like sky that's just this bronzy colored sky that's just radiating all this heat? Can you go from cold to hot? And the answer again would have been no, hopefully. And that is the intermission. It ends. Now we can move to the fourth example of God's ongoing control. It's almost like he's on a roll and has to stop to bomb Job. This fourth and final point is the main point of the chapter. It is what Elihu has been driving toward this whole time. Okay? Right now you're thinking, great, we just got a meteorology lesson. What do I do with this? Here comes the main point. This is it. Number four, here's another storm God controls. God controls the life storm. Verses 19 to 24, the life storm. This is where he's been headed this whole time. He is not just talking about natural, physical storms. He is talking about the storm Job is in. Verse 19 He says, teach us what we shall say to him, that's to God. We cannot draw up our case before uh, because of darkness, he says to Job. Elihu concluded his words by telling Job that man could not present his case before God. Why? Because man lives in darkness concerning God's ways. You know, even the illuminated man, the man who has Jesus, remains in some level of darkness considering the mysterious will of God. No saved man has ever fully understood or comprehended the wisdom or power of God and never will. And he's saying, you know what? We can't bring a case because Job has been wanting this. I want to present my case before God. And he's saying no man can do this because you and I are in the dark when it comes to how God actually operates at times, especially when it comes to these crazy storms. If Job were allowed to approach God because that's what he's been desiring to do, 
if he were allowed to approach God to present his case, Elihu says, why don't you teach me and the other guys that are standing here what you would actually say to God? Teach us what we shall say to him if we were ever given an opportunity to stand and question God's power, might, and wisdom. Teach us what to say. I'd like to know. Here's what he would say. You're going to stand before God and argue and present your case? In other words, how could Job, a mere finite man, appear before the all-wise, infinite God to challenge and discuss the mysteries of divine providence. Job, as I said, had stated this desire to present his case before God several times, Job 13.13, 13, and also in uh, Job 13.8 and, and, and verse 18, and then again, not too long ago, in chapter 23, verse 4, all the time, I want to present my case. And Elihu is saying, you know what, you'd like to appear before God to argue your case? What would you possibly say to the one who does unfathomable things, who controls all storms? We cannot draw up our case before him because we are in darkness or ignorant of his ways. That's what he's saying. Verse 20, shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? This is sarcastic poetry. What Elihu is essentially saying here is that God is dangerous. Are you sure you want to just step before him and blurt out your case? You know, he, he, yeah, he's love, but he's also holy and infinitely wise and just and wrathful. We, we, we have a, a, a real bad theology concerning God these days. We see God as just, you know, He's just all love and no justice, and He's just like a big cosmic teddy bear, just loves everyone and wants everyone in the kingdom, doesn't despise wickedness. We have this terrible view of God when, in fact, our God is dangerous. Dangerous. Have we not read the Old Testament? Entire people groups wiped off the face of the earth because of their wickedness. And we are just so cavalier and so disrespectful concerning God. He is dangerous. He can be. We don't understand this. His wisdom is like a black hole. It's deep. It's mysterious. It's unsearchable. Elihu's point in verse 20 is simple. Sinful men like you, Job, are like me. We do not stand before God and question His divine wisdom. We are swallowed up by it. We are consumed by it because that's how great His holiness and majesty is. You know what Elihu has? A very high view of God. Verses 21 to 22, he says, And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. What a set of statements. In verse 21, Elihu reminds Job of the sun, right? 
That's the light that's in the sky that you can't look at for very long, if at all. It is blindingly bright in the skies, he says. He says, no one looks on its light when the wind has passed and cleared, when the clouds have, have moved out of the way. Why don't we look at the light that's in the sky, the sun? Because it hurts your eyes. It will damage your eyes to look upon it, like looking at a, the torch of a welding apparatus. I could tell you a story about that, but I won't. But I did burn my eyes pretty badly by looking at the flame of a welding torch. Woke up at 3 in the morning, had to go to Kaiser because my eyes were on fire. What did Rachel do? Tell me when you're done. I married that, and I know that you know when I do stupid things, and I have to pay for it, sometimes with very limited support, like being dropped off at the ER, <laughs> which I deserved. What an idiot. Who goes, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> Middle of the morning, oh, Rachel, help me. I'm blind, you idiot. I know. <laughs> you don't stare into the sun. Do it. And then you see, like, spots for, like, three hours, right? I wear polarized sunglasses, and you still can't look at it for long. The point is that this is true of God's holiness and glory, right? To look upon the sun is like looking upon the glory and majesty and holiness of God. You cannot eyeball the sun. You cannot eyeball God. He's too magnificent and brilliant and bright to look upon. Your eyes will be destroyed, so to speak. So the idea of you want to go and stand before God and, and argue your case, you can't even look at him. Like, you, you can't look at the sun. What are you talking about? How foolish. In verse 22, Elihu tells Job that looking upon and contemplating God in his glory who comes out of the north in golden splendor would be far more blinding than actually staring at the sun. Why? He says, because God is clothed with awesome majesty. I like what uh, Paul Washer said in a little YouTube video I was watching not too long ago, just a few days ago, and he describes a conversation he once had with a worship leader. I think they were at some conference or something like that, and you know the worship leader came off the stage and did his part. I don't know if washer was to go up and talk next i don't know exactly how it played out but he was having a conversation with this worship leader who backstage was boasting about how the entire auditorium had just experienced like the physical manifestation of god you know like we were just in the literal presence of god and washer replied if that were true we'd all be dead balloon okay I love that because that is the radiant holiness and glory and majesty of our God. You can't just walk up to him. Can you walk up to the sun? No. And God's glory is a trillion times more magnificent and brilliant and bright than all of the suns in the entire universe gathered together. It's a great argument he's using here. He's essentially using the Paul Washer argument thousands of years before Paul Washer was born. 
verse 23, the Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Elihu tells Job that the Almighty is beyond our reach. We cannot find Him, he says. Now, I don't think this is the best English rendering here because it, it might create some confusion because God has said in other places like Jeremiah 29, 13, that if we seek Him, we will find Him as long as we do it with all our heart. I think the King James Version, and it's the 21st century, it's a modernized one, which the King James only camp probably dismisses. I think it has a better rendering. It adds the words concerning and out. It reads, concerning the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. That's a better rendering. Elihu is not saying that God cannot be sought and found. He is saying that the depths of God's divine knowledge and wisdom cannot be plunged and discovered. You cannot get to the absolute bottom of all that God is because He is infinite. No man can ever know everything there is to know about God because God is infinite. To fully comprehend infiniteness, one must be infinite. Man is the opposite. He is finite. He can only comprehend what is finite. However, with the help of the Holy Spirit, a born-again man, a new creation, can begin to scratch the surface concerning who God is and what He's done. But it's just a surface scratch. And it will be forever and ever and ever. The fact of the matter is, God's power, justice, and abundant righteousness exceed our rational capabilities. They transcend our ability to comprehend and understand. He is infinite and so far beyond us. He is transcendent. He is holy. Any grasp that you have of Him is a gift from Him through the Spirit, but it's only scratching the surface. Thank God He allows sinful men like us to be regenerated so that we may scratch the surface. Amen? Because to not know God is to be outside of God and under his condemnation. Notice what Elihu said at the end of verse 23. I love this. God will not violate his own abundant righteousness. You see that there? What is he saying? He is saying that God always does what is right. Always. He is saying that it is impossible for God to do otherwise. He can only do what is right. God cannot violate His righteousness because He is righteousness. You must understand that righteousness is not a divine attribute that God has. It is the essence of who God is. He is righteous. He is righteousness. He is also holy, right? That's not an attribute. It's the essence of who He is. He is also triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, those aren't attributes. That's who He is. He is eternal. That's not an attribute. That's who He is. He is love. That's not an attribute. That's who He is. He is righteous and the source of all righteousness. He cannot do what is wrong. No, He cannot sin. Steve Lawson's commentary on verse 23 is just superb. He wrote, 
We are not able to understand, argue with, or control God. He is exalted in power, governing all He has created toward its appointed end. With such absolute sovereignty, man should not fear being abused by Him, but should know that God can only do what is right. In His justice and great righteousness, God can be fully trusted. That's a wonderful set of statements concerning that verse. Our last verse. Elihu says, therefore. Okay, so what, when we see the word therefore, he's drawing a conclusion based on everything that he has said. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit, their own pride. By summation, men fear God. In other words, because of everything that Elihu has said and because of who God is, men revere and respect God's person, power, and control. Sovereign power, sovereign control over the entire universe. That is the result. Elihu concluded by stating that God is also no respecter of the self-wise, those who are conceited, those who think they understand how God should run creation. When he says this in, in the second half of verse 24, he is taking a direct shot at Job, isn't he? Sadly, Job had become the conceited, self-wise know-it-all who was accusing God of mismanaging his life. What was Elihu's point in verses 19 to 24? You might be wondering, how does this have anything to do with controlling the life storms? It doesn't seem like it has anything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. The point is simple. The same God who possesses all power, perfect justice, abundant righteousness, who controls every storm, electrical snow and rain, also controls the storms of life. That's the point. God is the God of natural storms. God is the God of life's storms. God controls them all. That is the driving point. Think about how this plays out. This is amazing. Think of this. He uses the elements of the natural storm, the clouds, the lightning, the thunder, the wind, the whirlwind, the rain, the snow, the ice, to what? accomplish his sovereign purposes in the world. He gave us examples of that. Correction, care, common grace or providence, right? He uses the elements of every storm to complete and fulfill his will. He does this. He does this. Now, don't miss this point. He also uses the elements of the life storm, the disease, the stripes, the suffering, the pain, the death, the loss, what? To accomplish His sanctifying purposes in the lives of His people. To discipline us, to prune us, to shape us, to train us, to humble us, to grow us, to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus. This was Elihu's message to Job in chapter 37. Without a doubt, that is the point. What an awesome way to end your incredible speech. Now what, as we wrap up, what response did Elihu desire from Job? 
Because obviously he's preaching to Job and he'd like to see Job do something about it, right? Just as every Sunday, most Sundays at least, not last Sunday, but most Sundays when I preach, I want the people of God to act upon the word and the sermon to obey what God is telling them to do. Elihu has the same idea here. He, he wants to elicit, bring about a response of Job. Now, he knows that only the Spirit of God can do this, but he wants a response. There's something that he's after, and it's very simple. Instead of making false charges and challenging the way God was running and, quote-unquote, ruining Job's life, what should Job do? Because that's what Job thought. What should Job do instead of that mode? He should humble himself. He should silence his voice, and he should put his trust in God, in the God who controls all things. The God who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, one of my favorite verses. You are complaining. You are railing against God. I have shown you that God is control, in control of everything in creation, essentially, because we're not just talking about storms. We're talking unilaterally here. Storms are just a catalyst, an example. I have shown you that God is in control of all these things, including your life storm. It's time for you to put on your big boy pants and be a godly man. Stop complaining. Stop charging God with wrongdoing. Humble yourself. In fact, shut your mouth altogether and trust in Him. Trust in the God who is in control. He has never changed. Just because your circumstances have changed, just because your daily rhythm has changed, God has not changed, and that's why we don't base our lives on experiences. We base them on this that never, ever changes. The eternal word of God. Men are like grass. They wither and dissipate and go away. But the word of the Lord endures forever and ever and ever. Times a billion and ever. Times a trillion and ever. Times, I don't know, Elon Musk's in income. And beyond and beyond and beyond. When are we going to get this to our heads? Okay, so, so humbling and silencing and trusting is the right response. And I would simply just say, may God grant us grace in Christ and power from the Holy Spirit to follow Elihu's instructions the next time we find ourselves in a life storm. I just want to end with a point and a question and, and just flesh this out a little bit, the point of 37 really is God is still in control. And my question to you is, do you believe this? Or are you wavering like Job? And I am not heaping condemnation on you for wavering because there isn't a soul in this room that doesn't waver under those kinds of circumstances. I am like a, a sail on a boat. I'm flapping in all directions when the bottom falls out. I get it, and I know you do too, but it's a good question to ask. Do we believe this through thick and thin? Listen, believers, God is working through chapter 37 to bolster, strengthen, 
and even restore your faith to what it should be. He is all-powerful. He is perfectly just. He is abundantly righteous. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. Spurgeon once said, There is no attribute of God more comforting to His children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Amen. Be comforted. Be quieted. Be bolstered in your faith through this amazing text. That is God's gracious gift to you this morning, believer. Be strengthened. He's got it all in His hand. Unbelievers. God could be working through chapter 37 to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith comes from what? Hearing the word, Romans 10, 17. As a matter of fact, Christ is the abundant righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Jesus lived the life that you could not live, perfect obedience to the law of God. He died a bloody sacrificial atoning death for sin. He, he was buried in a tomb. He rose on the third day victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell so that sinners like you and I could be saved from the wrath that we're under and the judgment to come. If you repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God will cleanse you of all your sin. He will clothe you in the abundant perfect righteousness of Christ. He will justify you once and for all. He will adopt you into His family. He will sanctify you, making you more and more like Jesus as time passes. And one day, He will give you a new body and glorify you in the coming kingdom where all believers will live and reign in glory with Christ forever and ever. Amen.